I definitely don't want to go off topic, but congratulations to Australia for kicking the Tories out. Well done. Yes. No, this is good. You absolutely just did go off topic. You can't say I don't want to go off topic and then go off topic. Just do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 26th of May 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comments. Firstly, uh, we got an email from Phil Dyson, the chair of EastCon. Uh, the previous EastCon Reclamation 2022 and he writes with his official chair of EasterCon hat he tells us streaky bacon is the worth of satan proper bacon consists of unsmoked back rashers grilled not fried said rashers must come from a good butcher all other attempts of bacon are unworthy of the name that is all he doesn't like American bacon though obviously he does not specify whether or not he likes American bacon and therefore we cannot well, he clearly doesn't like American bacon because what he's talked about is back bacon and all other bacon being an abomination. And um, that includes American bacon, which does not include any back bacon at all, because it's all you cannot sell something as bacon in the United States unless it comes from the pork belly. Ah, in that case, maybe. So only streaky bacon. Well, I mean, Phil sent us a follow up email which says uh, Alison is wrong. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very picked upon. I feel like we've got Liz doesn't want any podcast nonsense, and Alison is invariably wrong, and John is sitting there with waffles, and you know, no waffles was yesterday. It's pancakes today. Okay, John is sitting there with pancakes. John always has pancakes. Yes, and I suspect you just need to set up a better pancake delivery service. Because <laughs> John has one. Right? It's called a Spania. But do they have bacon with them? No, because pancakes should be sweet, not savoury. Octothorpe, the podcast of arguing about food a whole lot. Yes, that is true. Yeah, pretty much. Chris Garcia has officially given Liz permission to say y'all. Thank you, Chris. As a Texican. Do you think she needed that? I did say I wasn't sure about saying y'all. The more just because it sounds weird when I say it. But I have got official permission now, so we're good. Chris says that Alison is right about bacon. Yeah, but he says that John is also correct, that American bacon is better than all bacon, which is clearly wrong. So, you know, I'm right about bacon, John is right about bacon, but Chris is wrong about bacon, so, you know. He says he will support our Patreon where we talk, where we talk nonsense about American food. So that's quite useful. That's one person. He says he's going to see us at ChaiCon, uh, and he's got his hotel and his flight, but he doesn't have his membership. Um... And he talks about the amount of gigantic spiders in the hotel. So that is interesting. I don't remember gi gigantic spiders in Tricon 7, but maybe I was just like having too much fun partying. I don't know. To be fair, he says the gigantic spiders are outside the hotel. So maybe they were just for some reason gathering outside Chris's room. Chris, what were you doing? Also, Chris, will you take us for gluten-free pancakes? Yeah, he writes in to say he's got his location set up for where he's going to be having his gluten-free pancake breakfast near the hotel, but then unaccountably fails to tell us the name of the restaurant. So, Chris, write in and let us know. We will keep it under our hats if you're worried about it being full of fans. And also he fails to tell us at what, what time he's booked the table for the five of us to go and have breakfast. Sorry, seven of us. Seven of us to go and have breakfast. So, Chris, get a reservation in, please. 
let us know. Use your channels. Good man. Mark Plummer wrote to us and he said how much he loves getting dis- us getting distracted and talking about video games, <laughs> but only almost as much as he loves hearing you, especially John, talk for 15 minutes about Arkham Horror. And now he listens to Octothorpe on headphones whilst in his office and says, Octothorpe, the perfect accompaniment to tedium. Yes, and I, I feel very strongly that this is right. This is what podcasts are for. It's when you're at work and you've got your headphones on and you're like, ugh, you listen to podcasts and they make it better. So hurrah for Mark. On the subject of video games, uh, I've been playing Horizon Forbidden West and uh, it's quite good. I'm now a bit shortly after where I went down a hill. Are you going back up a hill again? No. Do you have to go back up a hill? I don't know. I haven't played this game. I have played the little chess substitute thingy which i quite liked and i beat a nice woman who taught me the rules and that was good and there's a man and i don't like him but there's another man who's all right so hurrah balance out i played one game of the chess substitute and then decided i am not playing horizon freedom west in order to play a chess substitute i'm here to shoot machines and stopped top tip john mark also says love the chapter art and it would be nice if more of you said that just saying Please like us. It's also possible the most visible place for our artwork is not like buried in the chapter art of the podcast. Because I don't know about you guys, but I don't look at the chapter art of podcasts. Sorry. Oh, it's it's kind of the episode art, isn't it? Rather than the chapter art. It's um, and it does appear on when we distribute the fancied people, and it will appear at some point. We're going to put a fancy with all the art in, so you know it's it's getting out there. But but when when it's kind of when people talk about the podcast on things like um, file seven seventy and efanzines, they do put our chapter art, they put our episode art up with it. Mark also says that despite the fact that he would have expected it to become embedded behaviour, he found it very interesting how easy it was to forget to remask when you were moving between environments at Eastercom. Um, so like the thing he says was. You, you know, he'd come out of an, an environment where he didn't need to be master, would be strolling along a corridor maskless and seemingly not really registering all the masked people who were walking past him and probably thinking he was some sort of COVID denying rebel. Uh, and yeah, no, I know what you mean, Mark. Uh, I did. I did definitely have similar things. Um, so it is a good uh, point and well made. He also says that he quite likes the film of Mortal Engines, which I haven't seen, but I think has Lin-Manuel Miranda in it. Am I thinking of the right one? I don't think you are. Um, I'd like to say that I do not think of Mark Plummer as a rebel. So there you go, Mark. You're okay. Oh, I think of him. He's absolutely a rebel. I don't think he's a COVID-19 rebel, but rebel, yes. I've done a control F for Lin-Manuel Miranda on the Mortal Engines film page, and it doesn't come up. So I think you have invented that entirely in your head, John. Boo. Inventing things entirely in one's head is the best way. Are you you just putting Lin-Manuel Miranda into every film? Is this your thing now? No, I think I was looking at Lin-Manuel's filmography. I think I was thinking of Mary Poppins. <laughs> because they both start with M. I was wondering if you were thinking of Mary Poppins, and I didn't want to say. Righto. Because I don't think they've got that much in common, except obviously they're bo- both set in um, a steampunk London, one of which moves. We also have a little lock from somebody who's volunteered to help me with a secret project, Bradley Harris, who says, I've listened to some of your Octothorpe podcast and i love the way you british people sound you didn't say that i'm paraphrasing 
And I agree with John that Detroit pizza is very good. I have food recommendations for Chicago, so you can look forward to them. Look up Gibberito. And I have now looked up Gibberito, and I am very excited because that is right in my wheelhouse. I am generally very up for any food that is kind of from Spanish-speaking countries, I guess. Like, I've never had I've never had a pupusa I didn't like. And I've been thinking about it, and I, I think I do actually think that this might be nice. So um, I'm looking forward to trying it out. They link to flan de queso, uh, and assuming that that is similar to flan de queso you get in Spain, I am really well up for that. That's just quiche, right? No. <laughs> I mean, but it isn't just quiche because it's sweet. It's much more like cheesecake. Oh, okay. So I guess it's like quiche in the same way that a cheesecake is like quiche. Oh, okay, that's good though. It's in the family, you know, deep dish pizza, quiche, <laughs> flander queso, all of these foods have similarities but have different contexts. Basically what you're saying is that if you if you have a suitable combination of cheese and carbs, everything is good. I am saying that. You're not wrong. So I've had an interesting experience, um, which I've described in the show notes as I've seen Hugo voter packets from both sides now, which is the last year I coordinated the Hugo voter packet and had collected everything for everyone. And this year, I've submitted a thing to the Hugo voter packet with the help of John and Liz. So it turns out that when we got an email saying, ooh, congratulations, guys, you're a Hugo finalist, what we should have done instead of squeeing for an hour and texting Liz 47 times was immediately start working on our Hugo voter packet submission because what we actually did was a couple of days before the voter packet deadline go, oops, it's a bit time to get, about time we got this together, isn't it? Yeah, I had, I had a really torrid three days. Thank you for the extension, Cassidy. We didn't, see, we didn't look at it as kind of a few days before. The problem is that we looked at it sort of seven to ten days before and that was not enough time. Mm. yeah no that's right we should have we basically there were things we could have done earlier that might have been better i think that's fair to say so what went wrong is that we decided we'd better have some transcripts we've been kind of not having transcripts for two years and it's probably time we started having transcripts and so we have put four episodes into the hugo voter packet and we have put some transcripts for those episodes in and you will be able to download them if you're a check on member when the Hugo Voter Packet comes out, but we'll also release it. We'll put it somewhere. I suggest we'll probably put it on eFanzines um, so you can go and get it there. And of course, you can get the, the actual um, podcast from the podcast site. Transcripts are hard. Who knew? Yeah, it turns out even with the help of, you know, an automated transcription service, it gets sufficient stuff either completely wrong or slightly wrong that it still takes a very long time to turn the rough text into an actual transcript. Hmm. Yeah, and they can mostly tell the difference between me talking, John talking, and Alison talking, but not always. They're very bad, in particular, at the times when one of us says something and then the other one says "oh no" or "really" or "pancakes" or something, and then and then the first person goes on. So all of those have to be fished out and made into separate paragraphs. Oh no, really? Pancakes like that? It'd be much better if the podcast was actually just a series of monologues and not a conversation. So we should consider that for easier transcription. It turns out that the podcast is quite often a series of monologues as well. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that point, Alison? I was looking at the transcripts for some other conversational podcasts and it appears that 
those podcasts might not have somebody go off on one and talk solidly for five minutes in the way that ours does from time to time. This is only, if you look at the front of the thing we've put into the Hugo Voter Packet, it just kind of says Octothorpe Hugo Voter Packet submission. But if you look at the back in the colophon, the colophon is something that old time fanzine fans print in their fanzines to tell you who's done it and when and why so that you can find this information out later. It describes the document as an immutable artefact, which it is. But meanwhile, in the interim, John has worked out that we are mutable after all. Yeah, because mutable being a word which clearly means um, something you can mute. You can mute Octothorpe. Try it now. Lower your volume to zero. I go away. I come back. What? Crazy magic. Uh, so yes, we are mutable, but the transcript is not. No volume. And, and it is immutable and will never change. That might be a joke. True. Unless we upload a new PDF. Which we're going to. Um, and it's also an EPUB, so you can now read Octothorpe on your e-reading device. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, really. <laughs> I mean, I really like reading e-books on my e-reading device, and even I am not doing that. So um, please write in if you decide to. Alison did include something, which is um, early statistics <laughs> suggest that Alison talks roughly half the time on Octothorpe although it does change from episode to episode. But it is quite interesting to see the the divisions. It will not shock long-term listeners to find that Liz talks usually the least of the three of us because she only says things when she's got things to say. Yeah, I mean, this is partly because I like to, you know, reserve my participation for making uh, short, pithy and funny statements, ideally. But it's also because I shirk my duties of uh, introducing any of the letters of comment. I leave that off to John. Oh, I mean, that is... Oh, no, hang on. This is a life hack. Gosh darn it. (laughs) And also, I am also prone to monologuing. It's just that I tend to find my monologues less interesting than other monologues and cut them out preferentially. Yeah, I think I... Did I transcribe your uh, Android Netrunner monologue? That was... uh, I don't know. That was quite the monologue. Might be a villain origin story. The other thing about our immutable artifact is that we started doing the transcripts and Liz started on we agreed which episodes were going to go into the Hugo Vota packet and Liz started transcribing episode 26 and she wrote several times about how she was transcribing episode 26 so I finished episode 26 and then when I'd finished all of the episodes I went to check that we'd got the episodes in the Dropbox for the Hugo people and observed that episode 26 was not one of the ones that we had put into the Hugo Voter Packet. And I had one of those ghastly sinking feelings that you get when you go, oh, oh no. So we've actually transcribed five episodes so far. And we've in fact transcribed six episodes so far because we've also done episode 57, which will probably release at or around the same time as we do this. We have to work out where we're going to put the transcripts and things like that. Sorry about my brain fart, but in my defence, I did mention the title of it several times and uh, neither of you noticed. Discon 3 have translated their souvenir book into Chinese, which I remembered while we were recording this, and I thought was quite cool. I mean, I don't really have anything to say on it beyond I think it's quite cool. Uh, So, you know, I just thought I'd drop that in there. I hope that means that the um, Chinese supporting members of Discon will get it and read it and find it interesting. Yeah. I feel like they might get to the 
Wilk on long list and go, mm, this is not this is not what I got into science fiction to read. But, you know. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting because like, so Discon have kind of retrospectively translated their souvenir book. As far as I can see, I don't think Shai Khan have translated anything, including things like the Hugo nomination form and so on into any other languages, which is interesting because are we, should we be routinely providing them in the languages, you know, of the hosts of the Worldcons who can vote? Discon ended up with quite a commitment to getting like, like auto translations of their events into Chinese and things like that. So they, this is something Discon did take quite seriously. I just thought it was really interesting that they'd done the souvenir book. I think that's really cool. And, I, and my guess is that if you deal with a set of auto transcripts or auto translation and then have to turn it into real translation, that's probably not that dissimilar to to transcription. It's the same sort of it's the same sort of unpleasant finickety task. I have a suspicion that my sister, who is a translator would would disagree with you extremely strongly because you don't have any of the nuance of the language if you convert it you'd have to you'd be better off because idioms don't translate it's not like in a transcription where the where the idioms would yeah i i have a suspicion that it might not be right i don't know hmm. if you are a translator write in yeah i mean I, I do think that spoken language is very different from written language and the reason that i find transcripts so hard is that i want the written transcript to make sense and it the transcription of verbatim street speech doesn't always make sense. So that's not that dissimilar. Oh, no. Really? Pancakes? I, I, would, I mean, I would also say that if you're going for, like, auto-transcription, then, you know, Chinese is one of the harder languages, I think, to do the auto-transcription into. So Auto-translation, but yeah. Sorry, auto-translation, yeah. So I suspect they haven't done that. I mean, it's also worth noting that, you know, Chengdu already have a translation services division and division head uh, so I'm sure they're already thinking about what they're going to need, which is a lot of translation. I have not been looking at Chengdu's organisational chart, but that sounds like an extremely interesting thing to look at. Did you not see that they released it during EasterCon? No, because I spent EasterCon absolutely flat out over over committing myself. So, I mean, I've learnt a number of valuable lessons from EasterCon. I will say, listeners and Liz, if anything happened during EasterCon, uh, please tell me what it was. and you know, right in, because <laughs> I was not paying attention to much. Now, this is really good. Thank you for the link, Liz. That's a very interesting picture. I'll put a link in the show notes, listeners. Tricon launched their portal for expressing interest in being on program um, a while back, and the deadline was in the last few weeks and all three of us applied to fill in the program questionnaire and then all three of us filled in the program questionnaire and then i think some of us have heard back although i'm not sure whether all three of us have i think all three of us are confirmed on the on the list of program participants on the chicon website so we will all three be program participants but we don't know what program items we'll get yet I was down as a program participant virtually, so I've emailed them and let them know I'm going. So I don't know what that's going to do to which program items I was put on or not, because it might mean that all of the ones they thought, oh, he could be on that one, they're like, oh, no, that's a virtual one, and vice versa. No idea. Sorry, program team of Tricon 8. That must be very annoying. Do we know anyone on the program team? I don't think so. Liz is shaking her fist. I'm not, I'm not assigning panellists, so that's okay. 
And the way that Tricon's program participation worked was that in the expression of interest, you gave like a little bit about yourself. And then when you filled in the actual program, you the actual questionnaire, you got like a list of all of the things that they were planning to do. Uh, and you could choose ones that you were interested in doing. Um, the way it worked is that you could choose five that you rated a one and one is like i really 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 want to be on this panel and i think i'd be great uh you could choose five panels which you rated a two where two was kind of i have relevant expertise to this panel uh, and i wouldn't mind not being on it but equally i think i'd be good on it and then you could choose as many as you'd like uh to put three which is basically yeah i could do that and um you could like filter the program down by various categories I found the filtering slightly annoying because you couldn't filter, for instance, to program item type. So you couldn't filter between workshops and panels when I uh, looked at it. And I was like, I don't think I want to volunteer to do a workshop. So I would quite like just to select panels, but I don't think that was an option. But you could do it between kind of different areas of the program. So I looked mostly at areas that I was interested in, obviously. And so I've signed up for a couple on Fanish podcasting because uh, I am a fan caster and i have signed up for a couple of things like star wars and other things that i'm very interested in as a fan um so yeah we'll see what happens i can say i'm not sure if there were workshops in there to sign up for i think like it was mostly things where there would be other people on there as well i can't remember what i signed up for some of the same panels as john sorry john i'm gonna fight you for him so i put some fan casting panels some con running panels some science panels i did like how the system was like you can put things as number one, but you can only have like a certain number as number one, because I think that does sidestep people saying, here are the 27 panels I would be enormously great on. You have to actually select and you also have to explain why you would be great on them, which is good because if you can't plausibly write a sentence saying why you would be great on it, you're probably not great on it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it is quite a lot of effort, though. In the list of things I hugely disagree with, that's one of them. But I feel I have a problem with this entire system, which is it is going to make it harder for people who struggle with big forms, of whom we have quite a lot in fandom, to get themselves onto programming. And it is it preferentially suits people who are who are quite methodical and systematic about the way they do these sorts of things so i feel like um there is a considerable risk that the people who have carefully assigned themselves to 75 panels will get more programming than people who are absolutely fantastic but can't be asked with forms like this and i think i don't think the system is wrong but i think it probably has to be combined with a certain amount of oh we know that X is great at Y, but they have to be persuaded to do Y or it won't happen. They're never going to fill in a 200-page form. Over on the Hugo Finalists Discord, somebody said, um, well, I have, a, I have a Hugo Finalist who I've been helping to complete that form, but they could not possibly have completed it without some support from another person. And there is an access issue to forms that require people to write a lot of stuff about themselves for people who have trouble writing which this person does or for people who have trouble with forms so so there's there's this basically there's a problem with the um people who are too busy and can't be asked but nevertheless are good on program and there's a problem with people with the access issue so so there's kind of both of those are in the category of problems with the system i have another set of rants though which i'm happy to do later i can do as many rants on this as you like i think the thing isn't you don't 
you, so you're looking at this system in isolation and you're not comparing it to the previous system. And so this system does have a couple of things that are bad about it, which you've very neatly elucidated. I think in terms of people who have trouble filling in big forms, the previous system also has big forms. So I am not wholly convinced that this system is worse than that, but I do think it's something we do need to think about, and especially from the access perspective. When you said about um, people we know would be good, I think one of the massive strengths of this system, I think it's very easy for program to reflect the people that the program team know, and I think this system does an enormous amount to remove that and to broaden the pool of people out. And so I do think, and like if you know there's someone coming who hasn't filled in, like, I don't know, if Chris Evans is attending and there's a Captain America panel and he hasn't filled in the form, you might gently nudge him and be like, Chris, be on the Captain America panel, please. Um, but I do I do think one of the things this model is is clearly trying to achieve is making it easier for the program team to tell who would be good on panels that they might not be aware of. You know, I have big support for all of that. So, I mean, I am quite supportive of the aims of some of this stuff. Yeah, I think I am, you know, more persuaded by one of your points than others. You know, I think the access issue is a big one. And I don't know whether it needs to be in bigger letters. Look, if this form is a problem for you, if you cannot, you know, easily fill in this form, you know, if there are no, you know, get in touch with us because I'm pretty sure they would have said, okay, someone will like work through it with you or will, you know, we can send you the panels in a different format that might be easier for you to read, for instance, if like there's a problem with signing up for them on the website and you could do them that way. So I'm a bit more sympathetic to that one than to the people who are too busy to fill in big forms. Um, because then again, it becomes like, okay, so this person is too busy to fill in the forms, but we know they're good and they should be on program as opposed to this person is maybe too busy to fill in forms, but we don't know their name. So we wouldn't use them for program, even though they're great. No, no, I think you're preferentially selecting against bestsellers and people whose books people actually read in favour of wannabes. And I think that is not a sensible thing to do. I mean, I, I think it's fine to say, oh, yes, we want to broaden the range of people on the thing and have participation from more groups and particularly from underrepresented groups and people who we might not know about. But I think saying, oh, we've got somebody who's consistently on New York Times bestseller list, but we're not going to put them on program because they can't be faffed with that form is just stupid for the Worldcon. I think it's stupid. And can you tell us which authors you have seen that have been in that category? Um, it's a good question. Because I suspect this is wild supposition. That might be. And it may be that it's true, but I think that Worldcon is a big enough deal to most of the authors in our genre that most of the authors in our genre um, do do this. And the ones who don't are the ones who aren't bothering to come to Worldcon and are going to DragonCon instead. It's possible. That, uh, yeah, and you could say that there are probably a small number. Yeah, I would say there are probably a small number of incredibly high profile people who you would like then assist because. But in a way, it feels like the ones who come to your convention when they could otherwise probably be doing like, you know, personal appearances and signatures for thousands of dollars that weekend. Maybe we do put a bit more effort into making sure they get some 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 panels without having to put too much effort in. But the other thing is that those people also tend to have a person who works for them who can fill in forms for them. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Indeed. Chicon um, is on DragonCon weekend, isn't it? It certainly could be. I know Chicon 7 was because they had interlinked programming. It is indeed. DragonCon is at the same time as Worldcon this year. And Worldcon's been kind of avoiding DragonCon. Well, it's interesting because, because like I say, like, because I think, I don't know the extent to which that was true, like, a decade ago, because obviously I was new and shiny then, because Tricon 7 was my second Worldcon. 
I know that Tricon 7 had like video, had like hybrid content where there were program items that were shared between the two conventions, which was like, I have no idea how well that worked, but I remember thinking it was interesting. I don't have a good feel for what the Venn diagram between the two conventions is like in terms of potential attendees, like, because obviously the States is massive. So I don't, I don't know to what extent you hurt your attendance by going up against Dragon Con. Whereas like if there were two big cons in the uk you might be a bit more wary because the the potential pool might be lower i don't know as an example metropole con which is the berlin con next year has just is just in the process of moving because a large literary festival has launched on the same weekend as them and they're like oh no we can't do that interesting interesting um the, the problem with dragon con is not splitting the membership it's splitting the authors mm. no and that is fair it's the and it's the guests of all kinds. Professionals in the science fiction and fantasy field feel they have to go to Dragon Con because it is a, it is now a bigger deal for them than Worldcon. Also, if you're a sad puppy, you go to Dragon Con, right? That's my understanding because they're less angry with them. I assume so, but I don't know. And then when Skullsy got nominated for a Dragon Award, everyone was like, "What are these Hugo Award winners doing in our Dragon Awards?" It was very much like the Fan Awards, uh, but for Dragon Con instead of for Corflu, is my impression. I mean, the Dragon Awards are, you know, they're kind of like, I think they'd very much like to over time be more prestigious than the Hugos. I'm not sure that's likely to happen because I think awards have a huge first mover advantage, and that's why the Hugos are so prestigious. Yep. Do you want to do your second rant? Yeah, no, my second rant is that I didn't think very much of the panel choices. And I, I think that might be because the the programme team didn't doesn't necessarily reflect all of the different parts of Worldcon programming you might want at the point where they put the panel choices together. And some of the people on the programme team were more proactive about getting panel ideas in there. But that meant that for me, it felt quite unbalanced and there were a lot of panels that were very much like each other and for example there were like 14 podcasting panels and and despite the fact that i am i am a fancaster i feel like having 14 podcasting panels and almost no panels about the actual things that fans do um in terms of writing and art and i don't think i think there might be like one fan art item and there aren't very many art items altogether and I felt that there was clearly clearly not enough thought had been given sorry Liz yet to the balance of things that were on that um on that thing so a lot of things that I'm interested in 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 fandom you know that just wasn't very much on the on the program about it there wasn't a a lot about creating social spaces which is something that I think is incredibly interesting and I ask about every single time and it wasn't there and there wasn't very much about um there was some stuff about quite a lot of stuff about um making money but not very much about kind of turning your fan hobby into into business and things like that so yeah it was just lots of different you know I felt my my personal interests were not very well represented on the on the program and it wasn't because they were too busy with all the fantastic science serious science fiction and fantasy content or science content it was because there were a vast number of panels that were all very like each other on what I thought were quite narrow areas. There were, I don't think there were 14 podcast panels. I think that might be a slight exaggeration. I think there might have been more like six or seven. 
and i do think in general podcasting because because casting to like takes under its umbrella podcasting in the fashion we do it which is currently undergoing a huge explosion in popularity especially with companies like spotify getting into the space but it also encompasses stuff like tiktok and youtube both of which are hugely popular and so i suspect that fan casting is by far the most common expression of fanac currently in our genre and so i do think if you're gonna weight your program to what people are doing and experiencing that probably makes sense for most people but i might be wrong i do i don't know i didn't think the panels like there were lots of panels i was like oh you know i wouldn't be good on that but i'm not sure i thought that there were lots of very similar panels um but i don't know um liz what do you reckon yeah, so I think before we start, I should say I am on the Shycon program team, although I think I only had input into like a handful of actual panels on there. I'm not actually working for any particular area. Yeah, I, I thought it was quite nice, actually, because I think in a way it feels like we've had very few panels on podcasting. I think we've had like how to start your first Vanish podcast and a lot of maybe technical things. And it felt it was digging into the area in a way that you can if you have 10 items that you can't if you have two items. Um, and the rest of it felt quite balanced to me, but maybe that's just because it has more things, you know, about my particular niche interests than it does about Alison's particular niche interests. I would also say there was a big form where you could suggest items. So I don't know if you did suggest items and they've not taken into account or whether you did, you know, you didn't suggest them. Yeah, I mean, it is possible that I did not do enough work at the earlier point, but I I kind of thought that with um, Joe and Edie as guests of honour of the convention, there would have been significantly more about... Well, there's loads of Fanac history. No, there's there's a very small... There's a load of stuff about 1946, which isn't really fan history in the sense that fans today would think about it because it's 80 years ago. But it's exactly the sort of thing that Joe and Edie would be really good at talking about. Um, They probably will be good about... Well, they might be, yeah. But, I mean, they do a lot of other stuff as well. And I didn't think that was... There was as much of that as I would have liked to have seen. I think it's worth being aware that the the things you can sign up for are just items you can sign up for. And obviously there will be other items on the programme which have already been, you know, designed with people in mind. And I bet there are quite a few of those for the guests of honour and so on um, that that may not be there for open sign up. And so you can't judge the entire programme just by the things that you personally can sign up to be on. Ah. Oh, that's quite useful to know, actually. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm just assuming this, but just because I don't see things like guest of honour, you know, like the guest of honour interviews are not in there. So if they have things specifically like the guest of honour have said, you know, I would like to do a conversation with this particular interesting person, uh, it's probably not there. So you don't waste your time signing up for it. I think I just kind of have an idea of a sort of panel that I think is very good, which is that you take a chunk of, a, you take some topic in the field and then you take people who come at that topic in the field from different perspectives and you get them on a panel together. And, and those topics are quite broad so a lot of people could sign up for it but there were very few panels on the thing that felt like that they felt much more narrow in general and focused in general oh i mean so this and this comes back really neatly to an argument we've had about eastercon program where you're like we need more better program items and but the thing is that what you regard as better program items, what you just said, sounds bad to me. I'd much rather have focused items that actually delve into something in enough detail to be interesting rather than just a plethora of super vague items where I'm like, could be about anything, probably not going to go. And so I do think that is, and, and, I, and I can entirely understand why someone would disagree with me, don't get me wrong. Like, I entirely understand this is a subjective thing for me. Um, but I, I much more prefer that kind of um, program to a very kind of 
sort of high level not really delving into any crunch program and it goes back to what liz was saying about the podcast panels which is that i think she's right that having more panels on a subject lets you get into that subject better than having a couple of very high level program items does uh, and that resonated with me as well so so i think yeah i think this is a perhaps a subjective thing I will feel a lot more convinced about this the first time I go to a podcasting item, no matter how deep, that does not contain a discussion of which microphone you should buy. So so what I feel is they say they'll delve in, but every podcasting item is podcasting 101. And this is why when I suggested items to the Eastercon uh, just gone, um, a couple of the items I was like, and I would like to moderate that because... If I had not moderated them, I think they would have gone into very vague points and I did not want them to. I wanted them to be specific discussions about specific things that are interesting. And this is something that Esther and Emily were on a panel with me about board games and they both read the thing and went, oh, that's going to end up being Tabletop Gaming 101. And I was like, it is absolutely not going to end up like that. It's going to be a discussion of the modern canon and it's going to be a discussion of like the modern kind of historical context of the hobby. And that is the discussion we actually had and I think it was really good. But I think I think the the flip side of that is you've got to have moderators who are willing and able to read the panel description and deliver that panel. I went to a panel at Dublin, which was a really interesting sounding panel about animation. Um, but there had not been there had been some glitch in the program set up for that panel where it was not clear to the panel who the moderator was. So someone stepped in and basically moderated a very vague panel, which was entirely dissatisfactory to me. Um, rather than the interesting panel I had read about in the description. And I thought that was a great shame because the panel as described was fascinating. And a panel which is, what is genre? What is animation? It's just like, no, I've heard this before, I'm leaving. I agree with you. However, I agree with this. I agree that the moderator has a job to do, which is to deliver the thing on the sheet. Though obviously you have some scope for digressions, like the one we're currently having. Um, when they get into an interesting, gritty topic. But I also feel that in general, if I am creating a program item for a room of size X, I would like to think that it's going to appeal to approximately point X, eight of X people at the convention. And the problem with some of these quite crunchy panels, like the excellent one on um, on gaming over zoom that you moderated at eastercon that i really enjoyed being on is it attracted an audience of about 10 people and really you could just do those in the bar or or this question about is it worth really digging in deep into topics to get a to get a panel that really only a very few people will be interested in but they will have a final time if alison has a foolproof algorithm for working out how big x is prior to the convention you know if you can predict the number of people who will come to a panel within like two or three times the number of people who actually end up at that panel. No, not at all. Absolutely not. No chance. That's the problem. Because you can say, oh, I think this might only appeal to 12 people and I'll put it in a small room and then you end up with 50. Or you say, oh, this will appeal to loads of people and then there's 10 people in it. So We can do better than we typically do, though, because we don't do a very good job of collecting the data at conventions to then inform future conventions. For example, we Octothorpe filled its room at EasterCon, and I don't suppose anyone was expecting that, including us. Um, Lots of program items at EasterCon did not fill their rooms. Um, This is something that I would have thought would be useful for future convention committees to know about live podcasts in general i don't think it is unique to us i think podcasts have audiences and we know from folk clubs that if you if 
if things have existing audiences and you program them, people will come to them. We filled our room at Eastercon, but we were like, what, maybe a third full at Novacon? So even if you take those two data points, I don't know which way you extrapolate from those two. I was going to say, we filled a room at, you know, like the item just before the closing ceremony when there wasn't very much on. If you would put us on, you know, maybe at 2pm on the Saturday, I don't think we would have filled the room. So again, it's like a very complex arrangement of things. I probably would be better if we had better notes of how many people there were in rooms, but we need an organised way to do that. Because the, basically the volunteers are too stretched kicking people out of rooms at the right time to count how many people are in there. No, I, I think you require the moderator to report back. Yeah. And most of them would. Alison is entirely right, um, because I do think one of the things we're very weak at in con running generally is analytics. I like you have arguments about so many different things where people are like, I assert X and someone else is like, I assert Y. And you're like, is there any data to give us any perspective on which of these assertions is more valid and there is none because we don't we don't collect that data. And and part of that is because it's difficult. It's difficult to collect data um and that's why like market research firms are phenomenally expensive and well out of the reach of like anyone running a convention or maybe not a Worldcon but definitely like at an Eastcon level. It's difficult because most of the data capture would be being done by volunteers um, and i think you're right that most moderators would report back but like there is a weak link there but it's also difficult in that most of the analyzing the data would need to take place quite soon post con and we know that people tend to be very burnt out post con and i think the longer you leave it the more risk you have of not realizing you need some number that you haven't collected and then being like oh no and i've had this experience from public engagement data analysis where you do your analysis sort of a year after you wrapped up the engagement and then you're like oh it would really have been helpful if i had thought of taking that number at the time um so i do i do think this is a weakness in fandom but i understand why it's a weakness in fandom and i don't have any useful suggestions for things we could do about it well, you need a specific team to take charge of it and know that they're going to do most of their stuff after the convention. So preferably a different set of people who are not working pre-con, I think, would be the way to do it. The more data you gather during the convention, the better. You, if you gather the raw data during the convention and then store it somewhere, it's it's there when people want it. Um, it, it can be really simple things like the number of pints of beer we sold today. Nobody ever wants to do this after the convention. They want to do it during the convention. Well, I think Liz might be right. Having like a specific team of people that don't have any pre-con responsibility and just work post-con might be a good way of kind of sidestepping the burnout problem a little bit. And 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 maybe this is something like we should be, you know, looking at doing. I don't know. Maybe this is a thing that people could think about. Our con running knowledge base, which is the thing that requires people to work post-con, is way out of date and. I've had some thinks about what we can do about improving that. And indeed, it is to find people who want to do the work and want to do it after the con and make it their only job. But it's it's so far down the list of projects I, I want to get into that I haven't really done anything else with it. But if anyone listening to this and thinks, ooh, gathering this information would be a really interesting project, they should get in touch. I would like to volunteer. Whoever chairs the 2025 Easter con, come and talk to me after 2024 is over because this might be something I'd be quite interested in getting involved, but I'm not going to do anything before it's 2024. So so I feel like a bigger problem is getting a team together to bid 25. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not volunteering to take a leadership role in that. And, and I, I wanted to just say how right Liz is about um, room size 
estimates being a dark art because that clearly even if we got fantastic data forever it would still be impossible and i do accept that i mean there is the the alternate approach to room size which is to just have a convention where every room is entirely full because you've got too many people (laughs) which makes it all very simple we will call that the Loncon model oh Loncon model helsinki model I was about to call it the anti-COVID model, but then it might actually be pro-COVID in all the wrong <laughs> ways. So uh... I think we we should be getting better at this now. It happened because we started publishing programs in advance of the convention. And it turns out that if you program, publish your program in advance of a convention, people read it and identify things they'd like to go and see and go and see them. And the uptake of program is vastly higher than it traditionally was at, at uh, UK conventions, certainly, where traditionally the programme was something that pe- very many people ignored whilst in, bar- in the bar. And um, it is much less so now. People go to programme items in larger numbers because the programme is more public. Oh, no, I don't know if it's because the programme is more public. I think it's a whole different conversation about the fact that people tend to go to more programme now and possibly more programme when they've only been to a few world cons. So, But we might be drifting too far off the topic of programme-like software models. Um, well, well, thank you very much for this discussion, since I have volunteered for at least one item at Shycon about convention programming. Um, so we'll see if I get on that and then can regurgitate all your opinions as my own. Thank you. No worries. If you need um, any panellists for program items listening, if you need us to do your homework for you, write in <laughs> with the name of the panel you need the pre-chat for and we'll, we'll, we'll give it a good go. Uh, preferably things we know about, but we're not proud. When you was like, I assert this and I assert that, but there's no data. And I'm kind of like, well, it's probably a good thing there's no data because if we had data, we wouldn't have a podcast, would we? <laughs> no, I was also thinking about that. But no, I was thinking about like in terms of modeling, it is so difficult to model stuff like this, even when you have good data. Like there's there's like the whole field of machine learning where you're basically just trying to predict stuff like this like using enormous amounts of data so trying to do it with literally no data is phenomenally difficult so if you're a convention out there and you're trying to do a machine learning model where you put all the audiences for panels into your machine learning model and then generate panel names will get a lot of people to go along to them um do let us know because i know that somebody's done the first part of that where they put all the panel names in and identified a load of new panels like things like cake in science fiction discuss so the way that you do machine learning clarification is you like give everything a tag and then you develop an algorithm that can basically spit out like what tags are associated with what trends and so that would let you say like if i have x guests of honor who I've got data from previous conventions, and if I've got X subject matter, so say fan casting or fan art or science, can I then predict like what the likely what the likely attendance of a science panel with this guest of honor on it is, for instance? And that that starts getting you into kind of interesting things. But it also means you can make value judgments about how many fan art panels do we have? Will that capture enough of a audience? Liz, are you going to tell us to do picks? No, I was actually going to digress even further. Hey! Excellent! Have you seen a video from the YouTube channel Defunctland about Fastpass? 
the Disney system essentially for trying to uh, minimize people's wait time in line for rides. Because in order to do that extremely lengthy video, they basically set up a model of a theme park, you know, in which they could give the guests different behaviors and, you know, model all the attractions and the activities you could do and then have this sort of each person is therefore like a different model of behavior and what they like to do. You know, do they want to go on as many rides as possible with minimal waiting or do they really want to do the three rides they want to do and they don't mind waiting? And basically set it up as a model of an entire theme park. Um, so maybe we need that, but for a convention. And it's Python, it's on Git, we can nick it. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Excellent. No, I'm, I'm suddenly very excited about this. Yeah, no, we're crowdsourcing this, guys, because we're not going to do it, at least not till 2025. I mean, to be fair, genuinely, if I was not, on an Eastercon committee, this would be my next project. But I am, I know I'm going to have to say no because, um, oh, it sounds fascinating. It's quite good. Yeah, sounds good. But that's the other thing on the Tricon, on the Tricon program, and, and not just Tricon, like, I've not seen any discussions about how to try to improve conventions using data. Like, I've, I don't think that's a conversation anyone's having. And I think. Did you suggest it, John? I did not, because I only just thought of it, Alison, but I will suggest it. Can you suggest it to 2023, please, for the EasterCon? Thank you. Picks! So, um, who wants to go? Now, Alison and I... You're having a fight and I'm staying out of it. We both want to pick the same movie... We had a, we had a, we, I was like, I, I did cause dibs on this first. And John was like, I saw it first. And then John was like, well, I've been doing Hugo reading. So what I am showing the camera is I'm showing the camera a paper cut in between my thumb and my forefinger, which I believe means I can transition to the multiverse in which I win this argument. Oh, whereas I'm like going, this is a film about a harried middle-aged businesswoman with who is distractible and overworked with a with um a dependent and irascible parent and a aimless but bright lesbian daughter and um and an extremely devoted and kind but perhaps slightly dull husband and I felt seed. Not not as much as your family do now. <laughs> <laughs> my, my family have all heard this joke at least once already, as you might imagine. Uh, so for the listeners who haven't worked out, we're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. Which is great. I quite liked it. I thought it was really good. I like representation in movies. And there aren't enough movies about middle-aged women who are Michelle Yeoh. That's true. I mean, not even Tomorrow Never Dies, because she was quite young in that. Yeah, and she's she's older than I am, and she is vastly more flexible than I am, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> <laughs> more flexible than any of us, I think it's safe to say. I think, and on the subject of representation, this is actually something I said to, I went to see it with uh, friends of the podcast, Neil and Nick. I said afterwards, I thought one of the things I really liked about the movie was that Waymond really neatly encapsulates my basic like perspective on life. And I very much liked that because it's not often you see that perspective presented in movies, but it's really not often you see that perspective presented as not the easy choice. I think there's a real... I really liked having someone say, like, it's good to be positive and happy all the time, but it's not easy. And I, I very much resonated with that. Uh, I like that an enormous amount in terms of representation. But I suspect you felt more seen than I, Alison. I, I did. There's also, there's also some of the topics of the movie about, I don't think this is spoiling too much, one of the big themes of the movie is 
whether you could make different life choices and and experience a better or a different life as a result of them and also whether anything has any purpose whatsoever and I am at a stage in my life where obviously I do grapple with that sort of thing I think I think this comes and goes throughout one's whole life I don't think it's just that I think Evelyn is is meant to feel like a, a very relatable character for a lot of people I don't think it is just people like me Wayland is, as as John says, an amazing character as well. And I thought he was fantastic, which is probably quite good for my marriage, because I do have a uh, somebody who evokes many of Wayman's ways of living as a husband, which is good. And um, I really liked all of that. And I don't want to spoil the movie too much, but I did. I'm going to tell you another funny story, um, which is that I wasn't spoiled for this movie going in at all, really. So all I knew about it was that it was a movie where Michelle Yeoh has adventures in the multiverse and saves the world. And so I basically sent a text to John saying, I'm really looking forward to seeing a movie where um, that's about a middle-aged woman that's not all about her relationships with her parents, her children and her husband. And John was like, spoiler! <laughs> I said spoiler, and then in spoiler text, I said, in fact, the movie is entirely about that. And then Alison said, oh, I, I would have worked that out if I thought about <laughs> yeah. it. And I, but I felt really bad because I was like, I don't want to harsh your, I don't want to harsh your squee, and I don't want to spoil the movie for you. And But I really feel well, like, but I am going to need to warn her that maybe it's not pure escapist fun uh, in, in some aspects. Yeah, there was enough escapist fun that it didn't, it wasn't all, it wasn't, it wasn't too, too downbeat for me. It will be on next year's Hugo ballot. You heard it here first. I mean, I did not hear it here first. first. No. I heard it in other places. <laughs> also, two other things. On the letterboxed page for Everything Everywhere All at Once, the little reviewed icon is a little googly eye that follows your mouse around the page, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, lovely attention to detail. Googly eyes are sort of a motif of the movie. Les. I'm going to pick a young adult fantasy duology, which is Ray Bearer and Redemptor by Jordan Ifueko, which are Lodestar nominees from uh, 2021 and 2022. Um, and I've read these recently and really quite enjoyed them. I'm struggling to start with where to describe them because there is just so much in them. But essentially the idea of the Ray Bearer is in this uh, fantasy culture, which uh, is very heavily derived from West African uh, cultures, I think. The Ray Bearer is kind of the, the emperor figure who has the magical power of the Ray. This allows him to essentially speak psychically to a council that he picks as a child. And once he's kind of bonded them to him with this psychic power, he's also immune to many methods of injury and death. And all of his council are linked together and cannot be apart from each other. So that's kind of the, the premise, which is that the, the main character, Charisai, is uh, brought in to be one of the new young emperor's council. But she's actually been raised to be an assassin who will, who will kill the, the young emperor before he ever takes the throne. But it turns out that the actual origin of the Ray Bearer has been shrouded and hidden and changed. And actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And by the end of the first book, kind of the situation in the world has changed substantially. The the Redemptors are children who are essentially sacrificed into the underworld in order to placate the demons who live there. And a very few of them basically make it out again and are the Redemptors. I've really only gone into kind of like half of the stuff which is in these books. So also I forgot to say that all the council have like a special power called the Hallow. Her power is to kind of read the memories from people 
and objects. Uh, and this is an absolutely crucial part of the story. It's basically just two books absolutely crammed with stuff all around the central character of Terracide. But I think even though it is crammed with stuff, it's still very well focused on the central character and the kind of journey she goes on. And a lot of questions about where does all the power and privilege come from in this empire? Who has it? And what can you do when you are given power and can, you know, choose to radically reshape the world or not? And we know what happens if you try and radically reshape the world, but the toll on yourself is too great. And then the toll on the people who love you and the people around you when you take that on yourself. And so, yeah, I just, I I really enjoyed both books. I think they're kind of, in a way, the antidote to our early discussion with Alison about books being stretched out over a trilogy. And I think this possibly could have been a trilogy. There is enough stuff in there and it feels like a lot of things happen from page to page. And there's a lot you could go more deeply into and characters who sort of, you know, prominent in one book and then fade out in the second Maybe because as even more characters are introduced to take their part in the story, there's not enough room for them. But they were just, they they felt like an incredibly full and realised world in a way that maybe you don't always get. No, I agree with all the things you just said. I liked both books an enormous amount. Um, I really like, so the, the idea is that there are 12 ways to die other than old age and you have... 11 members of your council so you're born with one immunity and then every member you appoint you get another immunity and when you complete your council you are um impervious to to death except for from old age uh which i thought was a really cool concept i very much like the like an enormous th- amount of things i can't really talk about here because they're spoilers um but i very much liked uh various parts including a lot of discussion about how how power manifests and how sometimes it's important to wield that power in different ways that aren't always through the proper channels i think i think the book especially the second book has quite a lot to say about kind of protest and about um power structures and how tying into existing power structures isn't always the way to affect change um and i agree with you like i i do think that could well have been uh three books um the first book kind of ends at a point where a lot has happened to change the world and then the second book kind of explores the ramifications of that which i quite liked um and i i think probably this is my favorite of the two lodestar finalists i've read so far i think it probably just about edges uh snake that fell to earth although both were fantastic um so yes i'm very much enjoying the lodestar slate so far yes i haven't read all the lodestar um all the Lodestar nominees yet. I've only read um, The Last Graduate and I think I would pick Redemptor way above The Last Graduate at the moment. Yeah, I should say it could be it could be a trilogy, but I'm quite glad it's not. I think I preferred reading two books that were stuffed full of energy rather than... And they felt like there was still enough time for the characters to, to breathe and for all these kind of big questions to be considered. Um, and yeah, it did feel like it was the right length still. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I like duologies. Okay. Yeah, no, I quite like duologies. Um, we'll talk about that more when we talk about Hugo books, I think. And that was the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. You went to see it in my old stomping ground. Oh, yeah, and I saw it at a John Coxon shrine, which was quite interesting.
which is the Showcase Cinema in Peterborough. It's not a shrine. It's just a place I used to work. It has lovely seats. I did not recline my seat all the way because I'd had quite a strenuous weekend and we were we were squeezing the movie in by kind of driving down the A1 going, where is the movie showing between here and London that we can get to at the right time, which is how come we ended up in Peterborough. And um, I was very worried that if I reclined my seat all the way back, I would fall asleep for three hours and that would be a bit of a shame. Alison did also say that she should, in hindsight, have asked me which cinema in Peterborough to go and see it at. And I did point out that this is a very London-centric view of how many cinemas there are in any given city. There are more cinemas in Walthamstow than Peterborough now. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 licence. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.